This is episode 190 wow. of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. This is very weird on a Wednesday. I don't know what to do. I know it is a little little awkward, because <laughs> tomorrow's not Monday. <laughs> That's true, but it is a work day. Yeah. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm, I'm good. Thanks for asking. Super. Super, super, yes. super. So um, this is our annual Verizon DBIR Spectacular. What's DBIR stand for? Data Breach. Um, um, I'm just kidding. Data Breach Investigation Report. I got it right here. Uh, it was a joke. <laughs> See? Indeed. And uh, as as per usual, it's good reads. It, yeah, it definitely is. Mm-hmm. Um, they They make it better every year. It's true. Although apparently some of the folks who used to do it have moved on. Uh, I think quite a few of them have, yes. Yeah. Uh, This one is, um, I will say, there's a lot of attempted uh, attempts at humor here, but it wasn't nearly as funny as last year's. I didn't want to say that, but I concur. I mean, you know. It's tough. Verizon people, step it up a little. Well, we're happy to do some medium fee consulting for humor. That's true. Because we got that market cornered. You know what else we got? We got a disclaimer. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that the uh, thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers or probably Verizon. (laughs) That's true. We we are not affiliated with Verizon. These comments are not sanctioned by Verizon. I'm not sure we're sanctioned by anybody. They'll probably regret this, so... It's true. Anyway, so jumping into the report, this is, uh, by the way, the 10th year for the DBIR. It can almost drink in Georgia. (laughs) No, that's not right. No, no, no. Get a tattoo in Georgia. It can drink in Florida. so, So for those who may not know, what is... This report. What, why do we care? What's what's a, what's a cover? Why does it matter to us? So uh, the 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 DBIR, in contrast to many other security reports by uh, by vendors in the industry, is um, is actually based on incident data. So if you were to look at most all other security reports by other vendors, they're based on surveys. So they're they're like opinion type surveys. You know how how often do you get breached, and how how you know how likely do you think you're going to get breached through your web or through email or whatever, and and that stands in contrast to Verizon's approach, which is to uh, partner with a whole bunch of different organizations like um, national certs and different law enforcement agencies, different. Uh, incident response companies, their own incident response firm, and they actually kind of normalize a a pretty large set of incident data, and then they analyze the snot out of it, and they produce an 80-page report every year. 
Indeed. So, so the the you know the, I think the the benefit for us in the industry is that we are actually seeing the output of actual um, you know actual incidents and not not hypothesis. But there is you know in in, in the very back of the uh, the report, they actually do talk about the limitations, right? Because even though it is based on actual hard data, you have to understand that there's what's what's known as sampling bias, right? So, um, you know, that... <laughs> quite can, can I ask you a question? How many books on sampling bias have you read in the last year? I don't know, a couple. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, figure. the point is... Um, the things that, that the incidents that this there's a whole kind there's all kinds of incidents that happened that aren't in the report and so we don't know you know of all the incidents we're about to talk about we don't know if this is a tiny fraction or most of them or right or, or you know what have you so um, and and also I think different industries are likely to call in you know law enforcement and um, you know incident response companies for different kinds of incidents. And so you may see some some bias from that too, but you know, be that as it may, it it you know they they, I think do it, a pretty good job. It's one of the best broad view of trends and likely things going on in the industry that we've got. Absolutely. So we like it. So there's a lot we can learn from it. There's a lot that. You know, it, it distills out a lot of the marketing hype into what's really going on out there, as best we can see it from, as best they can see it. Indeed. So let's um, let's get into it. Uh, they have a, a pretty nice executive summary on on what is page three, and I'll, I guess I'll talk through the pages. Is uh, you know, which, which hopefully will help you follow along at home if you want to. We're expecting this podcast to be approximately seven and a half hours long. Yeah, just so you know. yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. And it's really best if you listen to it all in one chunk without breaks. <laughs> so, um, so the, one of the first stats that stuck out to me was uh, the the number of, or the percentage of breaches that were perpetrated by outsiders. Right. So, se- mm-hmm. so in this, uh, the findings here are that seventy five percent. Of breaches are perpetrated by outsiders, and and by the way, that stands in dramatic contrast to most other, you know, c- kind of common knowledge, right? And yeah. and also many other reports. Indeed. So seventy five percent outsiders, twenty five percent insiders. Right. You um, know, related to that, the other one that I thought was really interesting: only eighteen percent of all the breaches were conducted by state affiliated actors. Well, so we hear all this talk about nation state this and nation state that. Eighty-two percent of your breaches are not not nation state. So let's so let's look at this at the eighty twenty rule. Seventy-five percent are outsiders. Eighty-two percent are non-state affiliated actors. So if I'm trying to get eighty percent coverage, <laughs> I care about outsiders who are non-nation states. Yep. Hmm. That's right. Maybe I have a chance. Well, in, in, interestingly, when we get into some of the industries, there are you know, there are different industries that that are uh, much more relevant to um, you know to the to the nation state actors. Sure. 
Uh, so let's moving on. Fifty-one uh, percent of breaches involved criminal groups. All right. So that's if you if you want to worry about a threat actor, like that should right. be for most industries that should be top on on the list. Uh, how, what tactics did they use? Right. Eighty-one percent. Now, hacking really the breaches leveraged either stolen or weak passwords. There you go. Yeah. So again, eighty-twenty rule. Yep. Weak or stolen passwords. Eighty-one percent of the time. Where should we be spending our cycles? Sixty-six percent of malware malware was installed uh, via email attachments. Way to go, email antivirus industry. Way <laughs> to go. Good job. That's right. Uh, so moving on. We'll try to get through this in, in an hour. We're going to well, What, what other stat I thought was interesting? Go ahead. Quick, 73% of breaches were financially motivated versus 21% related to some sort of espionage, industrial espionage, state espionage. So again, financially motivated. So if we're, we're taking the 80-20 rule, people are coming at you for money reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And only 27% of breaches were discovered by third parties, which is, again, is in contrast to a lot of what we're hearing. Right. Which is that, you know, it's normally the feds or Brian Krebs calling you up. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. All right. Okay. So, um, so moving on to, uh, to some of the, some of the changes in the, the trends. And one of the uh, major changes in 2016's report to this year's report is the, uh, the, the, the change in external detection versus internal detection. So external detection took a nosedive and internal detection took a big uptick. And they, they're careful to point out that that was um, largely related to a, a pretty big drop in pause intru- uh, point of sale intrusions and uh, banking Trojans. Right. So, and when, when I guess those are commonly detected by you know by law enforcement and whatnot. So because that because that as a category was much lower, kind of forced up the you know the internal de- detections. But they're they're careful to point out that does doesn't mean like we're we're necessarily getting better at detecting these things in, internally. So yeah, it just means potentially that as a percentage, uh, there there were certain things that law enforcement did well that that maybe have either dried up or the bad guys have shifted to other mechanisms or whatnot, and law enforcement hasn't, or fraud detection hasn't quite caught up with it yet. Right. And then they, then an interesting stat, they point out that financial and espionage-motivated breaches account for 93% of breaches. So, you know, that's, you know, you, while we, we do say that, you know, the financially-motivated breaches are... Where you probably need to be focusing your time, that there is, a, especially if you're in the manufacturing and public sectors, nation state or espionage cause is is uh, certainly something to keep in mind. And if you're curious what the remaining seven percent is, they group it under fun ideology and grudge motivations. Fig. <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, they, Which, they, you know. Yeah, they say the the rise the rise in espionage from from the previous year was partially due to the simple fact that uh, they they're featuring more of these breaches this year because you know basically uh, you know there were less again less trojans and less pause breaches right so so all the those things are now more prominent in the report 
Um, but they did say, and th- this was something that I thought was really interesting, and that is uh, they, they pointed out that they do not count ransomware infections in their breach count. And that kind of makes sense, right? Because, you know, you, your data wasn't breached if you're infected with ransomware, except that I believe the Department of Health and Human Services in the U.S. has has uh, put out guidance that basically says, you know, unless you can definitively prove that the ransomware didn't exfiltrate the data, you kind of have to assume that it did. So I could argue both sides of that one. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. So. Right. Just... But not to say that ransomware isn't a huge issue. It's just not included in their breaches. And uh, exactly. although they they do uh, later, just spoiler warning, they do indicate that ransomware is trending down, but still a huge portion of of concern. Correct. So moving on to uh, to page six. <clears throat> page six is a is kind of a heat map of the the various uh, objectives of breaches, either espionage, the fig, the uh, uh, fun ideology, grudge. Or financially motivated, and and they they kind of map that in, as a heat map across a whole bunch of different threat vectors, right? And the thing that that I th- I found really interesting was the differences and the commonality between espionage and financially motivated attacks. There's yeah. a lot of parallelism, except in some really specific instances, like in the case of espionage. Uh, there's a lot less frequency of using stolen credentials, which I thought was was really interesting because I I, I didn't expect that. Um, you know, capturing the storing of stored data is is pretty prominent in the in the uh, case of espionage, but non-existent in the case of financially motivated breaches. Uh, back doors are very prominent in espionage cases and very infrequent in financially motivated attacks. Uh, Web applications are, again, almost non-existent in espionage. That one surprised me too, but it's really common in in financially motivated breaches. Uh, Partners, so hacking via a partner, is completely unrepresented in espionage cases, uh, but you know, moderately represented in financially motivated, and then uh, uh, direct install malware and desktop sharing were completely missing from espionage cases, and and relatively, you know, moderate on the financial side. So interesting, um, you know, interesting differences. And by the way, other than that, they're almost the same. You know, the the all the other cases where you know. Well, you would, in many cases, yeah, the, the technique should apply, uh, regardless of, you know, the fundamental goal. Right. So both yeah. both are commonly using phishing. Uh-huh. Both are commonly using um, uh, command and control hosts. Uh, and they, they have like C2 in here like eight times. <laughs> I don't understand that. But uh, they're both using email very commonly. So, you know, there's there there, there clearly is a lot of uh, of common tactics between between the two actors uh, moving on to uh, next page one thing they pointed out in in this report is that 
from a from a pure the purely a standpoint of number of records stolen, it was you know all in the information in what they call the information industry, and and they they point out that you know these are the web portals, and I'm gonna guess it probably had a lot to do with Yahoo. <laughs> uh, you know, but but uh, you know the, it, it was uh, it was these. Uh, online portals where they're storing a you know a, a really large amount of data getting breached that's that's accounting kind of for the the mass numbers and they 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 have a a, a quote in here it says even if you are not breached there are armies of botnets with millions or billions of credentials attempting to reuse them against other sites in other words even though your comp- the even though components of authentication weren't compromised from you it doesn't mean they were not compromised, right? So, right. Uh, again, yeah, if you... It's, it's interesting looking at this chart, too. From 2014 to 2016, in 2014, there was nearly, I don't know, maybe less than a million credentials that were leaked, uh, according to, to this report. And in 2016, it was over a billion. Right. Huge change of people going after credentials, which, again... Uh, comes back to stop reusing username and passwords. Yeah, you need a unique username and password for every site, and the only way you're really going to do that is with an automated password manager. Yeah, and they they really point out that if you are if you are a public site and you're relying on just a username and password, you're you're asking you're you're playing with fire, right? Because you're you know you, you even can't, if your stuff is secure, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, two factors, your friend. Password managers are your friend. Right. Um, but yeah, we've heard a ton about huge amounts of credentials being leaked. Uh, you know, that's why Troy Hunt has a great site. Have I been pwned? Yep. <laughs> um, but all that being said, there's still a bunch of other stuff getting leaked too. But right. it's amazing how much credentials have shot shot up in the, in the last two years. Yep. So, um, so moving on to the next page, uh, they they point out that uh, decreases in credit card skimming and and uh, pause breaches were largely due to the massive drop in uh, law enforcement related detections. Uh, but but that because that went down, the number of uh, detections by employees kind of necessarily went up, you know, proportionally. You know, and so they said that this is a um, you know, second straight year. They also see an uptick in the detection through internal financial audits associated with business email compromise. So this is like the, you know, the CEO, the CEO scam or the CFO scam. It's true. I keep trying to send email to you, you know, pretending I'm your CEO. and <laughs> getting you some, It doesn't work. I don't know what I'm doing know. wrong. Yeah, keep trying. Eventually, right. eventually I'll fall for it. <laughs> Uh, let's see what else is is good here. Um, you know, they they point out that in in previous years, the the number of of uh, botnet infections and pause breaches really skewed the skewed the time to breach down into you know the the, the seconds, right? So, so and, they and by pause breach you mean point of sale point machines of sale. for yeah. Yeah, sorry, it's okay. For the acronym, uh, yeah. So, so uh, one of the one of the key metrics, the the report tracks on a year to year basis is how long does it take for the, you know, the, the initial intrusion to happen? Is it is it on the order of seconds? Is it on the order of minutes, hours, days, weeks, months? 
uh, years, and and then you know how often, how long does it take you to detect it? And so they they point out that because the the botnet and pause breach numbers went down, the number of breaches that take seconds to to initiate went down. But even even with that being the case, the number of compromises that happen in the, on the time frame of minutes is still 98%. Which makes sense when you think about the code and the exploits and such involved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I guess the point yeah. is it's not, you know, people aren't like, you know, picking at your website, right? It's right. They're, they're, it's not the, the movie style hacker where they're just, you know, banging on your gate for, <laughs> for days. <laughs> I mean, unless they're coming in like over a 2400 baud modem. Well, that could be, gonna, yeah, that could know. be. It takes them a while to send the the payload. Um, so they, they can, one piece of advice. I, oh, go ahead. Can I ask a question? Yeah. How can we quantify a discovery timeline of never? I don't know. That's a good point. <laughs> just, I'm just curious. You know, it, I mean, it, they've got they've got never for both time to compromise. So if you never do it, then I'm not compromised. <laughs> and they've got time to discovery never. Now, how do I know? That I never discovered it if I never discovered it. Well, if you notice, the lines are all flat, so I guess that makes sense. <laughs> I, I, I just, I'm just trying to understand, man. I'm just trying to, I'm just a guy. There is a, that actually brings up an, uh, an interesting point. And they, they talk about this back a couple of pages about the credential breaches, right? With Especially with like Yahoo and some of the others where we don't find out about it until years later in, in many cases. And you know, the you know that year's DPIR has come and gone, right? And, right. and that breach yeah. was not counted, right? So now, like for this year, I assume that in you know the Yahoo breach that happened in 2013 is counted in the 2016 data, and so you, you, I think you have to be a little cognizant like, of that. It's like filing an amended tax return. Well, that's kind of what I'm thinking, right? We need to, like, they need to go back and redo all of the previous DBIRs every time one of these things happens. That sounds like a lot of work. Well. I don't know that you're going to get anybody to buy off on that plan, but good luck. <laughs> anyway. Um, that, that's thought leadership right over there, right there. We're leading right off a cliff, but it is leadership, buddy. Thought leadership. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they do have a, um, some good advice. They, they point out that in order to help your organization, you really should be tracking uh, metrics related to the, you know, the, the time to breach, you know, so that, that minutes, seconds, days, hours, you know, um, and the time to detect, right? So you kind of want the time to detect to be you know, pretty close to the time, the amount of time to breach, so that you can minimize the the potential for harm. The, the you know, wasn't there a song about this? A time to breach, a time to contain, a time to live, <laughs> a time to die. Something like that. A time to work on your resume. For every season, there is a bad song. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, carry carry on. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So so, so quantify uh, how quickly you're you're detecting these things, right? Yeah, I guess the concern I have is I don't know how many organizations have enough breaches to to really do this well. Yeah, and when you start getting down in the weeds, what what defines the breach itself? Like, let's take for instance, somebody does a 
a phishing attack, gets a foothold on an endpoint, uh, starts pivoting to capture credentials, moving lateral in the organization, uh, gets on a on a server, starts getting more credentials, you know, gets domain admin, finally gets to you know the financial server and starts pulling stuff off there. What at what point do you consider that the breach happening? All of it? The point when the stuff's exfiltrated? The point when, you know, they did the initial foothold, when they escalated? Was, yeah, I think it was when they did the initial foothold. I think that's the... Yeah, so it's... You can... And, and then, you know, hopefully, you've, like you mentioned, you've got enough forensic information to be able to figure that out later. Right. So, it's an interesting stat. I, I think there's more voodoo and art in here than science in some of these numbers. I I agree, but I mean I, I I think the point is if you if you're able to work on you know ex- extending the amount of time it takes for you know for for the initial intrusion to happen, and you work on you know, on the other end you know narrowing the amount of time it takes to detect. I mean, if you think about those things at a high level, if you can work on those kind of coming together in the middle, you can uh, hopefully squeeze out the you know the, the the opportunity for an attacker to actually be able to get the data out so that the the time to compromise is not necessarily the amount of time it takes to get the data out right that's and i think that's the that's the point so so i'm not sure how you would lengthen the time to compromise but i think you've got a better shot at shortening the time to detect yes i agree well i think that the you know the time the compromise is in things like two-factor authentication and whitelisting and, you know, just kind of the basic hygiene stuff, mm-hmm. right? They're not impenetrable, but, you know, it, it, they have to be worked around. Yeah, fair enough. So, again, that goes back to when do you start and when do you end that clock. Yep, true. Yeah, that's, anyway, we, we digress. So, I'm going to skip a whole bunch of stuff and... <laughs> and Get into uh, so they they have this industry by by industry view, yes. And so what I what I wanted to do and there's you know each in this report there's um, I don't know how many industries there are there's a, a number of different industries and they talk about kind of the unique stuff in each industry, but then at the end they give kind of some recommendations for the industry and I just want to focus on those recommendations. I mean I think the whole thing is worth reading, but I mean we'll be here for days. <laughs> It's true, and the one thing I would caution is don't just focus on just your industry. There are trends, and there are likelihoods that are more likely than not to come after your particular vertical, but there's no guarantee or absolutes. Right. So, for instance, the top DDoS victims are finance out of the other – there's eight groups, just so you're – if you're curious, it's manufacturing, information, retail, healthcare, accommodation, public finance, and education. Those those are those are the eight. So DDoS by far goes after financial more than anybody else. But that doesn't mean that if you're in the public sector that you couldn't be DDoSed. Right. Right. And 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 so they each section I think has your top likelihoods, at least in retrospect for the past year. But there's also other interesting stuff from the other stuff too to uh, to keep an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so the first first industry up is accommodation and food services, and their their uh, things to consider are number one. They they um, they they couch it as 
uh, decreasing the amount of software installed. But basically, what they're I think what they're trying to say is that um, this this particular industry needs to put a lid on peop- uh, on the ability of employees to install kind of random software. <laughs> right. Less software you have, less attack surface you have. Less right. things you have to patch. Right. Uh, and then yeah. and then uh, you know not using default passwords. So, you know, and you can kind of, you kind of, you can infer what's, uh, based on their recommendations here, what's, you know, what, what the major causes of breaches were in this, in, in these particular industries. So, so don't use default passwords, uh, filter out remote access to the uh, point of sale terminal networks and only allow connections from whitelisted IP addresses. This is, by the way, is a really, Common problem. I mean, we've been talking yeah. about this since the start of the damn show, like well, years ago. I, I think this speaks to a larger problem, which is that you have a lot of locations for various hospitality and, and sorry for for food and and uh, what was the name of this category? Accommodation. Accommodations, right? Uh, you have a highly distributed environment of point of sale systems and whatnot in an organization that is not technically savvy and usually is outsourcing maintenance and control of these units. True. So, in many ways, they're set up to fail because they're not coming secure by default. Yeah. Yep. And that, but, that's but a I, tough one. But I think that I think you know a lot of times, especially smaller companies will outsource mm-hmm. the maintenance of these things, and and a lot of times, at my understanding, at least, is it's those outsourcing companies that are are, are really screwing screwing up here. They're you know yeah. they're. Managing them via RDP, and they just stick the you know stick the the pause terminal right on the internet. And hey, man, it's convenient. I, it, yeah, it's convenient for everybody. So, <laughs> uh, and then uh, then they point out that you need to patch, right? So no, I know, I know, it's crazy, right? APT level stuff right there. Uh, so ed- education services is next, and they point out that um, you know, that there there are really two things. That you need to do. Number one is to train employees to to detect suspicious activity. You know uh, things like phishing attacks and whatnot. Because apparently, um, nation state is is a fairly common uh, uh, actor uh, targeting educational services companies. And then also DDoS. And by the way, I have a little anecdote here. Right, I, my son was. Um, Taking, we have these things called. Um, uh, I forget what the name of them. It's a, it's a standardized test here in in Georgia, um, and they do it all online, right? And they had they had a an internet outage, and they, and they couldn't take the tests, right? And and so, how do we know that internet outage wasn't actually part of the test? Well, so it could have been. It could have been the Kobayashi Maru. Of standardized online testing. It, I mean, it's what do you do? <laughs> it was how the, do you handle it? It's planning in a the no disaster recovery, yes. Yeah. How yeah. do you handle a no-win situation test? Right. In the internet age. Your son, dead. Failed. <laughs> Killed by the Klingons. I hope you're happy. So, uh, so yeah, they, uh, they watch Disney movies. <laughs> what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. So, by the way, these these areas of focus um, doesn't mean you should ignore the other stuff if you're in this particular industry. This is, these are just the main pain points that they're that they're deriving right. from that industry. Right. These are the common. The, these are the things that are mostly 
causing the major the, the they're causing the majority of incidents in these particular industry right. verticals. Yeah. So uh, so next is finance and insurance, um, two factor authentication for for all web applications. Uh, having a DDoS mitigation plan, like you said, DDoS is is uh, you know uh, I should say finance is one of the the main targets of DDoS, and then and then also monitoring employee activity, and and along with that, uh, terminating access in a timely manner if they if they either leave on their own or involuntarily. Hinting at employee internal misuse and internal maliciousness. Correct. Internal, yeah, yeah in, insider threat is apparently a significant problem in the finance uh, area. Yeah. But, but they also term it as privilege misuse, which is sort of, you know, not going full rogue, just going kind of rogue. <laughs> right. That's right. All right. Next next up is healthcare. And they, had a, they have a bunch of recommendations for healthcare. Um, so the first one is to uh, work on ways to minimize errors. And so, so this one, you know, the, healthcare is one of those ones where it's, um, it, it's, it's really prone, I think, almost set up to fail, right? Because, you know, you, you, have, um, you have this, this kind of third rail type data and, and your office people have to work with it, right? So they have to email, you know, they have a legitimate reason to email it around and, you know, you accidentally email it to the wrong person, and bam, you're gone. You're <laughs> you're, you're toast. And and so, um, you know, they, their point is that you know you need you need to have plans in place to address all those kinds of things. Like another another common one uh, in in this report was PHI being you know, improperly uploaded to either intranet or um, internet websites. Right? I mean, we how many times did we have we heard about and talked about uh, PHI being found in a MongoDB database, right. you know, sitting out, hanging out on, on uh, Amazon? Well, I mean, you bring up a good point, which I think is something that affects many different industries, but folks just want to get their job done. They just want to, you know, get access right. to the data they need and just do what they need to do and get on with their day. Right. And uh, some of the stuff is radioactive. Yeah, but they don't... With care. But they don't, I mean, you know, I think after a while you get kind of numb to that you just you know it, it's just data I, I will say we we have a, a friend of the show who is a CISO at a major healthcare company and also who have, have as a host uh, what would we say I don't know an also ran podcast <laughs> maybe yeah, yeah yeah I mean what is it the Kentucky the Kentucky Fried Colonel Kentucky Fried Anyway, he might, or something, yeah. he's probably screaming at his radio right now because anytime we talk about healthcare, he he pretty much uh, <clears throat> throws things. He's already turned it off. He's he, he hasn't even gotten this far now. We're coming for you, Martin. We're coming, and hell's coming with me. <laughs> all right. Um, they, they they point out that you really need to encrypt all of your devices. Um, you need to make sure. By the way, we we talked a lot about, and that this is the the point they're making here, ransomware is a problem for the healthcare industry and you gotta have backups and they gotta be offline. Yeah. Right? And perhaps versioned. And yeah, inversion, that would be good too. Um and then, then they point out that uh doctor misuse is a big problem. 
right? So you should make sure doctors are aware, doctors and, and healthcare workers are aware that people or that their access is being monitored. So I, I guess it's it's a pretty common thing for doctors to go and, or not just doctors, well, right? But They're busy and important. And much like executives at most companies, they don't necessarily want the rules to apply to them. True, true. And then uh, tokenization of data is the other one. Yeah, the, the one I, I saw was interesting was have a policy in place for disposal of any PII and make sure it is monitored for compliance. Yeah. So, to, to, you know, make sure you're destroying data properly. Yes. Don't Absolutely. sell your laptop with all of your medical records on eBay. <laughs> but but I guess, you know, that, that, is a, that is an important thing because if, um, you know, f- for whatever reason, if, if a laptop does show up on eBay with you know, with uh, medical records, you want to be able to go back to that paper trail and find out what happened. You know, did you, did you give it you know, to a bonded destruction company? Right. I mean, was it even your fault? So anyway, moving on to uh, the next one, which is the information industry. Uh, first, first recommendation is to uh, implement two factor. How about that? Uh, on, on your devices and web stores and, for admin access, yeah. Everything else. And, and this is interesting. So PCI in, in 3.2 is rolling out. If you have admin access on anything that is within PCI scope, that admin access or elevated privilege access is going to have to be two-factor. Uh, so we might see this implemented more broadly outside of just the, the world uh, of PCI. I think it's, I mean, it's time has come, right? Yeah. And whatever you think about it, it's... <laughs> Well, how often have we seen password credentials captured and reused, especially in your favorite environment, Active Directory? That's right. A lot. A whole lot. More than, more than once. More than once. Uh, so DDoS, you need, to, um, you need to be prepared for uh, DDoS attacks. And then, uh, <laughs> I like the way they, they word this, you know, sysadmins must update server software before returning to work. Uh, so, so again, patching. Patching, patching, patching. I really just wonder if, if if many of the IT shops are just not fundamentally built with a mindset to patch in terms of the automation, in terms of the downtime, in terms of the reboots, whatever. They just... It, it seems like we're still fighting the if it's not broke, don't fix it mentality. I, I think that's true. I... I, I I mean, I, I don't know this, but I have a hypothesis that in this particular industry, the margins are really thin. You know, I mean, being that these are, uh, you know, web web portal type, uh, often web portal type companies, I suspect, you know, that, that margins are thin and, you know, uptime is, you know, is, is paramount and, and whatnot. So I, I, I have to believe that those two factors are probably kind of converging to to make patching kind of unattractive so um so moving on to manufacturing manufacturing by the way is like i I really didn't think about it but it's a standout in in the industries because they are the the far and away targeted by you know uh, espionage right so so they want that intellectual property Right, and they're all. It's all about the the intellectual property. It's all about the secrets, right? It's not mm-hmm. about PII or PHI, or it's all about their industrial secrets. And so they they point out re- their recommendations here are uh, that you need to keep it segregated, right? And, and you have to, 
uh, you limit it by job function. You limit access to that sensitive data uh, by specific job function. So, so people should only have access to the data they need, specific data they need to do their job. You, know, you shouldn't have a big company-wide file share that has all your blueprints and crap. I mean, unless they're I fake I've ever seen that. Unless they're fake blueprints with with subtle design defects Ooh, that that's you, a want, good idea. you want the Chinese to make. That's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, then, um, yeah, don't fall for phishing. <laughs> well, duh. Uh, I mean, I'm just saying, right? But again, it, that, only, that kind of makes if sense. If only that simple. But it, but but no, I think it, it makes sense, right? Because we we talked about how um, you know the, the the primary threat actor here are going to be the nation states and the organized crime, and they're after you know, they're after intellectual property. And we know that the the primary uh, you know, vector of attack is is through phishing. Uh, fair, but it, we've also beat to death the horse that you cannot train your folks away from clicking on links. So people are going to fall for phishing. So I think and they have more specific advice here too about training your employees to re- report right. suspicious emails and especially even if they've already clicked on them. But I think you still have to wrap a lot of technical controls around assuming they're going to click and how do you minimize that damage. Right. So you know, looking for lateral movement and uh you know, that, all if, that, they, if they give up their stuff. credentials, make sure that it's two-factor, et cetera. Right. So, uh, so next one is is um, monit- internal monitoring of networks, kind of what we were just saying, right? So um, you, you really want to, to have good intelligence monitoring audit logs, looking for that lateral movement, looking for the kind of out-of-profile activity, and then uh, implementing data loss prevention. So kind of all, you know, all else fails, look for evidence that, that, that you're – your key data is being moved around. I mean, if, if the, the data here is, the, the data in question here is this, uh, in general, the, the, the key intellectual property, and hope in the manufacturing setting, this, you know, probably a, def, a, a relatively well-defined uh, Yeah, you think that's data. one you could get your arms around, right? That, yeah. We often struggle with where's the data that somebody's going to go after. This seems like, I mean, I don't know. I'm not in the manufacturing world, so it could be far more complicated than I think it is. But this seems like a discrete set of data that could be fairly well controlled and protected. Correct. Correct. So um, so moving on to public administration. So this is another one that's, that's targeted uh, by, uh, by nation states. So, uh, so again, knowing where your data apparently is a, is a big, a big concern. Um, Let's see. Sorry, lost my place here. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so monitoring your egress points, right? So again, kind of like we talked about before. Uh, I, 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 although I would imagine in the in the setting of a. So monitoring for data egress, for data exfiltration, what are we monitoring for? Yes, for data data exfiltration. But where, I guess where I was going is that I, th- I would imagine in the context of a government setting, there's probably a lot, you know, a lot, much more varied amount of data uh, and also probably not as, uh, you know, not, not as much, you know, I, I guess appetite for, for fancy expensive solutions, I suppose. That's the way I'll say it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a budget challenged area often right 
depending. I mean, of course, public uh, is such a public administration is such a broad term from a small city municipality to the federal government. Right? We're talking about a huge swath of different size of organizations. Well, exactly. And so, so they don't talk about it here, but they, they, they do talk about it in one of the next sections. Is you know, in in uh, in the public public administration area, one of the big problems they have is actually police officers improperly using their access to you know to to like the the lean network to you know to get information on you know boyfriends and girlfriends and and wives and you know other other people so that's a apparently a big podcast problem. co-hosts podcast co-hosts too yes retail so so uh with with retail there were there were really i, I think they had two ways of looking at retail. One was the online part of retail and the other was, you know, kind of everything else, which online was primarily susceptible to DDoS attacks. Shocking. Yeah. Very surprising. And then the, you know, the everything else is really susceptible to more of the traditional credit card PCI environment uh, breach. And, and so they had You would think the online would have more web app attacks though. But apparently, I, they're doing a fairly good job of securing against that. I, that that surprises me because we don't, you know, we never really hear about the Amazons and the Ebays and whatnot falling falling victim to things. It's always, uh, you know, it's always the the, the traditional retailers. Well, so, one thing the PCI Council has done well is forced a, a good amount of third party scanning of websites. For problems. yeah, but 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 I guess well, that's that's certainly true. And so I guess even if you were to think about the um, you know, the traditional retailers who have online sites, you know, I'm thinking about Home Depot and Target and whatnot, you know, mm-hmm. th- their big problems were always with, you know, not with the online part of the business. It was always the, um, you know, the in-store part. Yeah. Yeah. So, or, or their, yeah, their backend service. Yeah. They weren't, we haven't heard too many web application attacks against big sites, but you know, I, it's just surprising to me. Yeah, and I mean, who knows? Maybe it's already happened, and the common, you know, the common point of purchase algorithm doesn't work as well. I, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. But so, so there, there are considerations for retail where, where number one, uh, have a DDoS mitigation plan if you're online, and then number two, to implement proper segmentation of your network. So, so if you're a more traditional environment. You want to have uh, you want to make sure that your um, kind of corporate network and your I guess CDE are, are separate. And they, in fact, I guess they they actually go so far as to say that if you know I guess in the context of a um, you know an online retailer, you would want to segregate the the corporate from the um, you know the online presence even on the different internet connections. Mm-hmm. I think that does a couple things for you. One, from a from a denial of service standpoint, if depending on how segregated they are, there's less impact across the organization. It's it's never good if your main e-commerce site gets hit by a DDoS and it takes down your corporate environment as well. That's that's a problem. It makes it a lot more difficult to respond to that DDoS. Um, good point. But beyond that, if if somebody and I think this goes across the board, we have this assume initial breach mentality these days. And we're kind of shifting this mindset of minimize lateral movement capabilities. And this definitely comes into play when we're talking about uh, segmentation. I mean, it can be a pain in the butt, but the more you can segment, 
the the harder it is for a bad guy who's gained a foothold to move around the environment. Yeah, and that that was uh, one of their uh, also one of the recommendations is to to really implement that seg- segmentation in a manner that requires multi-factor authentication to get from one zone to another zone, which you know seems seems reasonable, but um, it, it can be difficult. It's tough. It's really tough to retrofit an existing environment. Yes, very much. I so. think that's the challenge. I, you know, we've talked about this offline a lot. That if you were setting up a net new business in any of these legacy environments, you have such an advantage of lessons learned that you could build in from the beginning if you chose to. But existing companies definitely have a lot of, for lack of a better term, legacy architecture that's really expensive and time-consuming to change. Yeah, and uh, yep, that's a challenge, so. which is where we get into this concept of bolt-on security and right. magic black boxes that'll fix all your problems. Yeah. It, it, boy, I'll tell you, my IT career, it, these are the kinds of projects that, that just kind of stall in their tracks, right? You come up, you you know, we end up with these grand plans of, of transforming the environment and you never, you never finish them because they're too expensive or they don't, they don't show the value. And so, you know, I, I think that's, you know, that is a big problem, right? And that, I think that is the advantage of some of the, the newer online companies have had that they, they haven't had that kind of legacy baggage. Yeah, agreed. But yeah, I think you're right. You know, trying to pitch a complete re-architecture, such an expensive, time-consuming, resource-intensive project, and it's very long-term return on investment that takes a while to really see the value, right. especially for executives. Definitely. So moving on to their next item, which is really not a domain and it's not a tech <laughs> class, so it's kind of out there in, in limbo. It's called Attack of the Attack the Humans. And there's some some interesting stats in here. I think we talked about this early in the report. They said that 95% of phishing attacks that which led to a breach were followed by some for, form of mal, uh, you know, software installation, right? So things like which um, make, makes sense, you know, yeah. malware or TeamViewer or something like that. And um, you know that that the motivations of phishing-based breaches fall into two categories. Three quarters of them were financially motivated, which I thought was interesting. Uh, and then the, the the other quarter was state-affiliated actors conducting espionage. Which Supposedly. Allegedly, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it goes back to attribution is hard. Yep. So um, so then they, uh, they get into some detail about the... Uh, you know, the, the effectiveness of, of training and whatnot. And they, they point out that 7.3, according to the data they have, 7.3% of the users across their the, the collected data they have were successfully phished. Um, and they said that 15% of those users who fell victim once also took the bait a second time. And then 3% clicked more than twice and, and then 1% uh, clicked more than three times, which was pretty interesting. Um, they said that of the of those who had recorded instances of the phishing, right? So, so where you know, where the uh, the breached party had recorded whether or not the the uh, phishing attacks were reported by the employees, they found that twenty percent 
actually uh, of the victims actually did report it which is not bad right so i mean they don't know what the whole the, whole, the total picture is but of those where they had data they found that 20 percent of people who fell for a fish reported it which is a little more than i thought right i mean I, that's a lot more yeah than I, thought. I, I wonder what the percentage of that of that 80 percent who didn't report didn't even realize they've been fished well see that's exactly my that that's really where i was coming from because if you know <laughs> I wonder how often do people actually realize they fell for it? I mean, that, that's, and then, you know, going beyond that, often I've seen education programs of report suspected phishing emails, but rarely have I seen education programs of report if you think you've fallen for one and yes. you know, all the sorts of uh, issues and psychological things that come into play for that. Uh, you know, the shame involved with having fallen for a phishing attack, that sort of thing. So maybe that's the next next area. I think I think we've said it a thousand times on this show that you're never going to stop everybody from never possibly clicking on a phishing attack. Somebody's going to click at some point, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why. So no matter how much training you do, no matter how much simulation you do, people are still going to fall for it. Now, you can get that portion down. We're not saying training and, and simulation watch isn't useful, but you're never going to get to zero. So you still have to figure out how you're going to deal with those ones that click and how you limit the damage. Yeah, and I, and I, know, uh, I know there's been a number of Twitter discussions lately about making sure that you, you, you have a culture where people aren't afraid to report that they've that they've fallen victim, right? Because if they you know if they fall victim and they become aware that they did, you want them to report it so you have the opportunity to go and, and do something rather than hide it and let it be, you know, become a, right. a much larger problem. And so they they um, in the report here they have a couple of recommendations. They point out that again you want to empower your employees or, or user base to alert fishy emails, as they say. Um, you want you want to um, you know you want to identify those employees who fall for, who you know who fall victim for it. When someone does fall victim to one of these things, you want to make sure that you expire their credentials as as quickly as possible. Uh, you want to isolate the systems that are involved. You want to have the the telemetry of what's going on in your network to be able to identify that you know if if a system that someone fell victim to a fish on was communicating with some, you know, command and control yeah, system. You know, that's, that's one I want to touch on for a moment. That's really difficult to put in after the after the case, after the fact. Absolutely. So that telemetry item, whether it's on the individual machines at the network level, or both, you really want to be pre-equipped with that. Uh, you know, the other problem is that once that machine is compromised, it can be difficult to trust anything else on that machine, but at least you should be able to see the initial compromise action and perhaps some of the follow-up. But very quickly thereafter, depending on what is loaded on the machine, uh, whatever bit of software you have doing telemetry on the machine can be very quickly obfuscated. But nonetheless, then hopefully you've got network-level uh, telemetry monitoring of some variety of what that machine might have done after that. Yeah, exactly. My My experience has been that you know, especially especially after a day or two, workstation-based forensics becomes really difficult to to get anything meaningful from. So, so anyway, that that is something that um, I think is pretty important. Even firewall logs, 
I think would would be uh, pretty beneficial here. Yeah, I would also want to know what was going on laterally in the environment, though. So hopefully, I've got firewall logs in between main segments. Yeah, but that's often not the case. Yep. Yep. Well, you know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of organizations are Active Directory shops, and assuming they don't completely own your active directory you can sometimes look at and i've seen this before right you can use you can look at active directory logs and see evidence of of lateral movement oh yeah microsoft's got actually a number of uh white papers and such out on that and even some services for uh, watching bad guy movement based on uh, windows logs now they do say that you should have a plan that identifies and removes malware and and i'm, I'm a little I wish they would have worded that different, <laughs> you know, identifies malware and re-images re the system. I think that, that'd be the way I would word it. Uh, yeah. Then they, they, then they go on to recommend, we've talked about this on the, uh, on the show in the past, they recommend pretty strongly that you label external email in the, in the subject line. You know, again, because thinking about attacking the human, right? One of the big issues we have is the, you know, the the CEO email or the business email compromise, the CEO money transfer scam, and you know, you want to know that an email is coming from outside. You want it to be very clearly visible. And I see a fair number of of business partners of mine who, uh, you know, in when I'm corresponding with them, I, I I can see evidence that there are a number of organizations that do this. So it's, mm-hmm. it's it's catching on. Yeah, I think it's huge. And then just train your users that if it's marked as external uh, or however you put it, be very, very careful with that. Treat yeah. it as, as, you know, radioactive. Right. Now, it doesn't solve every, everything, but it's it's a heck of a good step. And, you know, there's a lot of other technology and, and techniques out there for for anti-phishing technologies that can be explored and looked at. Given how prevalent that attack technique is, I don't know that we put enough emphasis on it in terms of our technology stacks to defeat it. I I definitely agree. They they point out that you really want to also have a, and this is kind of a non-technical thing, you want to have a process in your HR, or sorry, in your finance and accounting groups where uh, approvals of payments are never performed using email, right? You want to right. have it uh, be, c- be conducted through some other means. It's just becoming too dangerous. Jerry, I'm the CEO, and I'm telling you, you need to do this right now or you're fired. All right, hang on. I'm logging in Right to my bank I mean, right now. Hang on. I mean, not to be too flippant about it, but... All right, so uh, moving on, they have a section on ransomware, which they delegated to McAfee to write, which I thought was interesting, giving, given the uh, the hoopla that happened. What was it, last year or the year before? When Hang on. Is McAfee currently owned or not owned by Intel? What's the latest? I think they are owned still, but in the process of being sold. I can never keep up. I know it's it's really confusing. And Intel security name is gone. Now we're back to McAfee. Correct. And and John's like, aha. <laughs> well, <laughs> I I in, by the way, I interpreted the reason they they went back to McAfee was to, in preparation for selling it because you don't want to sell, you know, 
Intel security, Intel security no. to somebody else, right? No. I will say, just a quick aside. So, you know, I remember when the press release came out that Intel was buying McAfee, and all the glowing, marketing-heavy words about how wonderful it was going to be, and all those going to leverage all these synergies and buzzword compliance stuff. And then I saw the press release of them spinning out again, and it was almost the exact same marketing buzzwords of how wonderful it was going to be and why. Well, I mean, you know, what are they supposed to do? Marketers got to market, man. I'm just saying. It's only so many playbooks, right? Uh, All right. So back to the the ransomware. So ransomware, they they, they wrote a couple of pages, and there were really only two takeaways, I thought. One of them was they said that the, the major shift in 2016 was away from you know the, the, a trend moving away from individual based ransomware attacks and more towards organizational based ransomware attacks where the ransom ransomware is infecting or sorry affecting and encrypting data at a, at a you know company level rather than a person's workstation and we saw you know we've talked a lot about a lot of those kinds of uh, incidents over the the past year or so and uh, and then the, you know they also pointed out that uh, you know f- of the what they call the social actions you know, for for uh, that they, they kind of divide up the causes or the the, the, the attack vectors of the social actions twenty one percent of you know, these these social actions were actually um, ransomware attacks which is up from eight percent. The year before, so I mean, this is um, this is a rapidly accelerating field, and and they they also point out that um, that there are different and focused areas of of companies that are really primarily being targeted, like HR and accounting. Right. And so, you know, th- th- I think that's a that's probably a good, you know. Uh, well, HR and accounting both have to open attachments for over email. Well, ex- exactly right. Right. Especially HR and, and recruiting. I mean, I, some mm-hmm. some organizations have separate recruiting companies or recruiting departments, and you know that's. I think that's a particularly problematic area because how do you tell a recruiter not to open resumes they get? Uh, well, submit it to our online resume system. Yeah. Well, then yeah. then you get people bitching about your online resumes as, as they should. <laughs> Um, it's not included in this report, but uh, another thing I, I've seen recently is that the average ransom demand has gone up pretty dramatically, and the percentage of times that people pay and don't get their files back has gone up pretty dramatically, yes. which is starting to mess with the economics of ransomware. Right. Part of the key to ransomware was that there was this reasonable belief that if you paid, you'd get your files back. Uh, and that the cost of paying was reasonable for the value of the files. If those two things get disrupted, the ransomware industry could fall apart. Well, you know, we, we've often joked about how you know, that's a, that's one of the, the possible end games or ways to end the ransomware epidemic is, you know, is, is by some... <laughs> I guess they're all malicious, right? But you know, malicious actor coming in and and completely upsetting the ecosystem by you know by releasing a really pervasive piece of ransomware that doesn't give your files back. 
after you pay and and then people become really skeptical and and now it you know becomes an unprofitable venture but i i guess the you know i i suppose it's kind of an individual thing right and so maybe there's maybe people will always be willing to take that bet to, you know with the, with a chance of getting their files back i don't know yeah we'll see so um so the next section they have uh well, Oh, go ahead. One last thing is they do mention no more ransomware.org, which is a very good site. Yes. Uh, if, if you run into ransomware, that's one of the first places I would go. It's a, it's a big collective uh, uh, from a bunch of different uh, organizations that have excellent decryption tools and other advice on dealing with ransomware. So yeah, it's no, no more, more ransom.org. Ransom right. What did I say before? No more ransomware. No, that would be wrong. No more ransom. I think, I think no more ransomware is probably a porn site now, right? <laughs> Well, if not, it will be shortly. <laughs> Hang on. Registering. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, moving on to the next section, which is uh, what uh, what Verizon had come up with a couple of years ago was um, uh, uh, these nine attack pat what they call nine attack patterns. And uh, they're, they're, you know, we'll, we'll kind of step through them. They're, you know, what we just talked about was their view by industry. Right now, this is kind of the same set of data caught up by attack pattern. So, it's a little bit different way to think about it. So, the first uh, the first attack pattern is crimeware, and so this is you can kind of think of as a superset of of malware that includes ransomware and whatnot. And there, you know, they they point out that the the way to think about per- defending yourself against this is to block executables at your email gateway which i mean we could have had this conversation in like 1998 yeah seriously right disable macro enabled office documents uh, you know I again mean, again 1998 called right um but you know it is it's making a comeback and it's it's pretty effective yep uh let's see then then they they go on to point out that you really need to have a very robust anti-malware strategy, which probably should include things like application whitelisting, uh, sandboxing, and, and then you know network defenses that can detect communicate malware communicating with uh, you know I, probably not only communicating with command and control hosts, but also laterally moving in your organization. And then uh, then finally, they say that you you really ought to be prioritizing patches for browser-related exploits, and and that includes plugins. And I would say, I would actually add to that email client patches and and plugins, too. Yeah, I would say Office, anything browser plugin-related, Java, Flash, yeah, absolutely. And this is something that we've talked about a, a little bit in general, prioritizing patches. And in general, for most organizations, enterprises, they have this test routine that they go through with a certain class of test users that they roll out a patch to make sure it's not disruptive, and then they roll it out to the rest of the organization. Usually it's a you know, 30, 60, 90-day cycle kind of thing, depending on criticality of the patch. I'm starting to come around to the concept of if it's Java, Flash, browser, or something Outlook-related or, or Office-related in terms of Microsoft Office, just push it. I think the risk of, of of some sort of problem with a patch 
is much lower than the risk of an exploitation hitting an unpatched machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I don't I'm know that there. I'll get much support with that, but that's kind of my... <laughs> well, you know, it, it it's one of those strategies that will work until the patch breaks something, and then... <laughs> Well, and, and that's the problem, right? Because you can't prove how many times you solved, you stopped a problem because exactly, you aggressively patched. Exactly. You can only prove when it breaks something. Right. And that that is always a frustration. Absolutely. So the next attack pattern is cyber espionage. And in this uh, in, in this area, they they point out a couple of um, a defensive techniques and number one is and this is you know one of those painfully obvious things that you want to make it difficult for the adversary to establish a foothold on your network yeah we started to talk about that a little earlier and you know and i think that's some of the same kinds of things we just talked about app you know whitelisting patching well to be fair a lot of the defensive strategies are the same regardless of the vertical or the yep category of <laughs> of uh, attack type. Yep. To be honest, and then they they point out that you really need to have monitoring and logging to to be able to review account and device activity. Um, you know, not only um, you know to detect compromise, but also to evaluate. And I've, by the way, I've seen this. This is painful, right? If you don't have good logs and you detect a breach, especially if it's more advanced attacker, you know, you end up in this kind of burn it all to the ground uh, situation where you don't have any other option because you don't know where they went if you don't have Oh, there's plenty of other options that people take. Well, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, I've seen some of them, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a problem. We'll just keep an eye on it. It'll be fine. Then we'll just be back later. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, let's see. Then uh, reducing the impact of a compromised device you know, by, by making lateral movement harder again through isolation or through network segmentation and the use of two factor authentication, right? That these are, these are, I think the whole point here is just kind of think through, especially given the data they gave you here in this, in this particular report, you kind of think through if, you know, assuming that you're in, in a, in a vertical that's likely to be targeted by, you know these kinds of advanced attackers. I don't think like the the accommodation and food service industries are places where you know these are these things are too relevant. But if you're in manufacturing, right, where you have a lot of sensitive intellectual property, you know these are the, the that's the that's the kind of industry they're they're coming after, right? But again, for a now, lot of these, a lot, it, yeah, it, it but I change. I'm just don't, I don't know that China's ever going to go after like holiday. Inn. No, but. The techniques are not here. Here's what frustrates me about the the TTP argument around attribution and technique, tactics, and and uh, pro, hockey something. pucks. No, anyway, <laughs> nothing procedures. limits it's any other group. Right? Thank you. Nothing limits any other group or any other motivation to use a similar technique. They're not exclusive, and if it if it fits the goal. There's nothing stopping another type of criminal from using it. Well, we talked about that at the very beginning of the report. They had that heat map, yeah. where it, which compared the techniques of the, you know, the, the espionage actors versus the, you know, the the organized crime actors, and they mm-hmm. you know, there's a high amount of parity, except for you know some specific 
areas. Um, but you know, you know, it, it's hard to argue with, um, you know, se- properly segmenting your network using two-factor no, authentication, yeah. regardless of who's coming after you. Right. And and that's my point is that I think, I think the industry, rightly or wrongly, has tried too hard to do attribution and to attribute certain types of attacks to certain types of attackers. And I don't think that that's wise to focus too heavily on one set. I mean, unless, unless you really, you know, have a very limited amount of money and time and you've got to go after your 80, 20, you know, what does the 80% likelihood, but this stuff changes so rapidly and there's nothing that stops one group from, from copying another group. I, I actually honestly think that is the very problem that the discussions about TTPs is trying to solve, right? We have, we have, we have less money. We know we have less money to spend on defense than we need. And so we've got to, we've, we've got to prioritize. We've got to make some really tough decisions on what we are going to spend on. And so based on, you know, the profile of our business, what is the, what is this, you know, if I've I've got a million dollars to spend and I need, you know, I need to spend $10 million. What is that? What am I going to spend that million dollars on? Yeah, I, I get it. I just, I think it's a false sense of security. And and for the, and, and by the way, for the people who work in the really small groups, okay, you you need to spend $1,000, but I only have $100 to spend. Right. Because I'll get, get some angry emails. <laughs> so anyway... The next pattern is denial of service attacks. We've talked a lot about denial of service attacks in the past, and you know, there's no magic here, right? This is one of those deals where you're either prepared or you're not, right? You know, yeah. And and they they had some interesting stats of size and duration, and you know, most most DDoSs last two days. That's the median. Thought that was interesting. Yeah, they they. they kind of analyze do some really nice an- analysis and they they point out that um, there, there's kind of two ways to look at it this one is you need to think about you know what are the key assets for your business right and how you know can, can you live without them right and so if you can't live without them then you need to do something right you, because you know <laughs> you have to you have to plan DDoSs are not something that are are really uh, manageable after they've started, you know. Right, uh, yeah, certainly, you can engage Akamai or one of the other providers, right? But holy cow, I will warn you right now: once it started, it is really expensive. Yep, really, really expensive. Uh, and then the the other point they bring up is that, you know, again in the in the analysis here, they they point out the you know the kind of the, the, the range of sizes, attack sizes and attack durations, you know, you need to think about where, wh- what kind of attack do you want to be able to withstand, right? Because that's going to dr- you know, pretty dramatically drive how expensive a solution you need. Yeah, and DDoS defense is, is its own huge beast, whether it's network design, uh, segmentation uh, at, at this to content delivery networks, 
to working with your ISPs. Uh, you know, this is not a non-trivial task, but it's again, just like you said, this is not something you're going to fix in the in the moment. Uh, you really have to be prepared ahead of time, or, or you're, you're going to suffer. Yeah, I mean, I I think this is <laughs> having having a lot of personal experience with this area. In in terms of launching the DDoS? Um, no comment. On the advice right. of my attorney, mm-hmm. I declined it. Uh, no, seriously, though, um, this is this is something you don't want to roll your own, right? I mean, you... you I, I've, yeah. I've seen it go horribly. <laughs> I've seen it go horribly yeah. wrong. You almost always have to be working with your ISP as well. It's very, very difficult to defend this uh, once it's come down your pipes from but, the ISP. But but even I think even even so, there are other alternatives, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, does it make? For instance, do you want to engage? You, you know, do you want to put your ISP under contract to get to you know to provide you DDoS mitigation services? With the understanding that, in in general, those those services are not immediately active, right? Right. So you are you are if if you start getting attacked, you're going to be down for some period of time until the the, the traffic can be uh, synced synced, and you may also lose some, you know, some valid traffic. Yeah, you know, and and you, you yeah. There's no perfect solution here at you all. Contrast that with like the Akamai or the Cloudflare model, which uh-huh. you know is you know is is much more real time in terms of being able to sync your traffic, but it has other implications. Like typically, you have to you know oftentimes re-engineer your application, and yep, and you know, and, and it's there's sometimes people can still find your <laughs> the source of your site and, and DDoS it. So, um. You know, th- this is a it's, a it's a difficult area. Uh, there's there's a lot of smart people that have thought about it, and I recommend not trying to reinvent the wheel there. Yeah, agreed. Uh, next attack pattern is insider and privilege misuse. So in here they they point out that and and by the way this we I think we mentioned it before right this kind of flies in the face of uh, a kind of the common intuition in a lot of other industry reports that um, you know only 15% of breaches originate from insiders. Yeah. But this is another interesting one, which is that because of the way bad guys work, often they grab valid credentials and then become the pr- just like an insider. Correct. Correct. So, so defending against it is the same, <laughs> potentially. Yes. Correct. And now, now that, I guess that's the um, that's the, the kind of the unknown, because in in Verizon's parlance, right, they are only considering, and you know, the fifteen percent insider attacks are fifteen percent of the breaches were committed by an insider, right? Mm-hmm. They're not counting all of the cases where some external party compromised the credentials of an insider. They count those as external, right? So. Which, which makes sense, right? But we're just talking about from you know from a defensive standpoint, it's very similar. Yeah, and they and they point that out, right? That is the, the same techniques really uh, address both sides, and and um, but you know, the, the, I guess they're pointing out that you know you can spend a lot of money and time training your employees and and doing background checks and whatnot, but at the end of the day. Even if you had the, you know, as they point out, right? Even if you had the most trustworthy employees, 
on Earth, right? You still have to have those kinds of controls in place because that's how the attacks are happening. They're stealing those mm-hmm. people's legitimate credentials and then they're off to the races. Um, so then they, they had a, a couple of other interesting things. I'll, I'll, I want to read this. The discovery timeline for this pattern displayed in the, 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 there's a little graph shows that the breaches are more likely to take months to years to detect rather than weeks or less. When it takes years to discover your organization's lost control of sensitive data, it's a bit like watching a celestial nova. The original event occurred far back in the past, but we're just now learning the details. I thought that was really uh, uh, pretty pretty salient. And then they <laughs> then they talk uh, um, they talk about some of the different uh, verticals within you know th- that are particularly hard hit by this uh, insider privilege misuse area. They say that healthcare workers accessing medical databases either to steal uh, uh, PII for identity theft or snooping on patient medical histories. And we've seen this a number of times over the years when, uh, you know, celebrities have gone into the hospital, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and, and then there's a, some a big investigation. Uh, and then public administration breaches are, are often workers uh, in the law enforcement field abusing their you know, their access, which we talked about previously. Um, then uh, they, they also point out that you should be using a, a, some kind of a, a, a banner, right, that, that indicates people accessing these systems are being monitored and whatnot. I'm a little skeptical, right, about... Yeah, that one was odd to me because that wasn't that folklore back in the, you know, the... <laughs> the 90s that uh, you have to have a banner up for it to be you know, legally enforceable i don't think that really yeah went I, anywhere I, i'm not <laughs> i'm not sure that you know someone who who wants to spy you know if a, a police officer wants to spy on you know a, a, a an x or something i'm not sure that a, a an extra banner is really gonna <laughs> cause a lot of gr- you know Rethinking on his on his or her right. part, or, so, or a system in looking at employee email who shouldn't be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now they go on to say, and I do want to read this too. Some some of the breach discovery stems from forensic investigations of employee devices after their their departure from the company. While important, mm-hmm. organizations should also focus on monitoring designed to capture and prevent data transfers or USB usage closer to real time to reduce the impact. You know that I I don't uh, other than banks and maybe some some uh government agencies I don't know a lot of organizations that do that. Yeah, that's a that's a fairly mature organization that's got that level of of data awareness and monitoring going on. But you know so so I guess the downside to you as an organization has to be pretty significant for because th- this is this is not only an expensive control to implement it's also really unpopular mm-hmm. right and so you have to you know yeah you, ha- you have to have a lot on the line and by the way i wonder if the gdpr that's coming out in, uh, in just over a year now or just about a year now might be uh, you know an incentive that's going to drive a lot of this now, because uh, that'll be interesting. Four percent of your revenue is a big, big stick. I guess it will depend on how that goes. 
Yes, indeed. Uh-huh. All right. So moving on to uh, miscellaneous errors. Um, not in, not a lot of magic here. They point out that you should have a procedure for discarding anything that might have the slightest chance of containing sensitive information. Because, uh, you know, that's... Um, <laughs> yeah, we we talked about that earlier. It came up. They, they, they point out in here, uh, they have a couple of little funny anecdotes about... Uh, a medical, some, uh, I don't know if it was a hospital or doctor's office or whatever, but dumping medical records at a, at a, a city landfill and a, uh, a reporter was there, a reporter was there watching them do it. (laughs) That didn't go well. And then, uh, I guess in, in another case, there was some, someone selling a file cabinet full of medical records. So you, you know, want to, you want to have a, you know, procedures that help prevent that from happening. And also, you want to have uh, a, a process where you identify, and hopefully you don't have too many of these things to, to draw on, right? But if you do have incidents, you want to feed that into your training. So, so whatever, you know, whatever incidents you have or have had in the past, you want to, you want to learn from that and make sure it's rolled into your training. And then, uh, and then finally, you want to have a reviewer, and we, we talked about this in one of the previous instances as well, you want to have a reviewer, a second set of eyes for anything that's going to be posted. Any, anytime you're going to be posting sensitive data on an internal or external site, you want to have a second set of eyes to make sure that it's posted properly in such a way that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's got the proper access controls because there's been a lot of instances where, where data has been improperly uh, uh, made accessible. Uh, so next is payment card skip, uh, skimmers. We're getting down to the to the end here. Thank God. I mean, good. Yeah, Karen. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, they they said that uh, in 20, 2016, the the number of uh, skimmer incidents involving gas pumps tripled. From 2015 to 2016. For the record, I saw my first gas pump the other day that used a chip. Yeah, and they, they actually have a great, uh, yeah. a great joke on the next page. They say that mm-hmm. there are substantially more reports of Bigfoot Bigfoot sightings than there are of gas <laughs> pumps with chip readers. A local gas station just went through a huge remodel, and uh, the new pumps actually have chip readers in their in their uh, credit card slots. Interesting. I've not yeah. actually seen one yet. Yep. Yeah. But you know, at the end of the day, it's 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 really on that retailer to get those out there because if they don't have it and they have fraud, uh, that's their liability. Yes, that's right. After October 2015. Indeed. So, so anyway, their uh, their their advice on this is to monitor your uh, your your terminals with video surveillance and then uh, watch, watch the tapes uh, from time to time and then also to institute some kind of a periodic physical inspection uh-huh. right where you you know you have someone go out and actually put hands on you know and, and use things like tamper evidence seals and, and and whatnot which I'm a little skeptical on right because you know especially in the case of like a gas station I'm not sure that a I mean, you know, no offense to gas station employees, right? But I'm not sure that 
their necessarily authority on whether um, you know uh, some piece of tape has been disturbed. So, yeah, I mean, and they're getting far more sophisticated. Uh, you know, we keep coming across reports and pictures and videos of really, really clever skimmers. Yeah, definitely. Especially with 3D printers and stuff, making it even easier. Right. So moving on to uh, point of sale intrusions. So this is um, far less prominent, by the way, in, in in 2016 than it was in previous years. So that's why it's all the way in the toward the back. But you know, they they point out that the predominant way this is happening, or, or pause breaches are happening, is uh, with smaller retailers. Um, having their, their their pause systems accessible via the internet badly secured, you know, so kind of just flapping out there in, on the internet with uh, you know, weak or default credentials, you know, RDP open. <laughs> so, so they, their their recommendation is that uh, particularly the smaller and medium size retailers really need to work with the the because most of the time they're not managing those devices themselves, that they're outsourcing that to somebody else. They need to they need to know the right questions to ask their outsourcer. You know, are, are do you have multi-factor authentication? You know, what do you have the the um, you know the, the proper kind of uh, isolation from the internet, that sort of thing. So now, Mike, you know, I'll tell you my concern on that point is that small and small to medium-sized retailers and i've known people who have had you know have owned retail company or retail stores you know like one-off retail shops they're not going to know what two-factor is right yeah it's asking a lot of a, of a small business that doesn't have a skill set in it much less IT security that they've got a skill set in whatever their business is. Right. So, so all they know is you know they're they're. I, so I don't know how to solve that one, right? Because you know the 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 average, the average um, corner store owner that's not a not a chain, is not reading the DBIR. Right. Right. So. Yeah. It should be their providers, right? But but obviously they're not. So. And this is a tough one. I don't know how to solve this one for small businesses. They're, they're just, they're in a world of hurt when it comes to computer security. Yep. Then uh, physical and physical theft and loss. Um, interestingly, they, they point out that the, uh, and I, I was kind of surprised by this, the predominant problem in the physical theft and loss, you know, I, I was thinking, well, you know, obviously the, the solution there is encryption. Well, they, but they point out that the, the real problem in this area is is theft of of hard copy, you know, p- printed records or paper records. Um, obviously, if you don't have paper records, and you know that that doesn't really apply to you, but um, you know there's a, there's just a lot of instances of of uh, you know file cabinets being sold online and um, you know that that sort of thing. So, uh, but for you know f- for the rest of us, I guess. It, it really is about encrypting your devices. And, you know, most, in, in a corporate setting, just about every kind of workstation device you come across now has the ability to, to be uh, in natively encrypted. And, and it's 
you know, all but transparent to the user. And and yes, we can have the discussion, you know, is is BitLocker backdoored by the NSA and you know, is 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 PGP how secure is PGP? But you know what? From from the point of whether or not you have to report a breach of uh, you know to, of PHI to the Department of Health and Human Services, they don't really care. Yeah, we get we get caught up in these pocket cases when really, I think to be effective, we probably need to worry about the ninety percentile cases. Yeah. Yep. So I mean, you can worry about that stuff for your home computer. <laughs> but for for your work computer, let's do something that 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 is you know easy to use, transparent, and just just kind of works out of the box. It it certainly is going to lower your risk. Yeah. Now, you know that I I kind of wish that uh, operating systems like Windows and and Mac and in Linux had a better way of ensuring that like portable USB drives were encrypted, you know, so before you could copy data to it, that you know, there was some, some sort of setting you could enforce. You know, I know that there's a lot of data loss prevention type software that you can, uh, you can install <clears throat> and, and you have to obviously buy and some of it's pretty expensive. I know you can do it, but I just, it seems like it would be a more native thing. So, yeah, well, a lot of organizations turn off USB drives in general at the operating system level for, for writing to them yeah well that brings its own yeah set of troubles right and that's not foolproof either but yes all right web app attacks is next dear Um, god tell me we're getting close to the end we we are really close i can feel it (laughs) and see it so um you know we don't have to go really deep into it but you know they, they they point out that one of the one of the the best ways to avoid big breaches is to not have a ton of data in your web app, right? So no, I know it's crazy. Uh. Um, then they they also recommend that your uh, applications use two factor authentication, even for you know even for user level access, because we've talked about this in you know a, a while ago in the show that a lot of you know a lot of these applications are being breached through stolen credentials not from your site right and so so if you don't want the data that's stole that's stored on your system to be breached by someone else's bad behavior then you know two factor is a is a good way to go or or what you do is you take your users and their usernames and the passwords and then you go try to log into a bunch of other sites with them and if you can then you tell your user to change the password <laughs> I, you know so I, I I need to get a patent attorney on the phone. I, I wrote something up about you know because my my idea was that websites should just generate a password for you, like it, you, you shouldn't be necessarily that is pure communism. Well, I, actually, I was I was going for I was Pico going red bastard. <laughs> I was going for libertarian paternalism because you could you could change it, right? You didn't have to accept it. But by default, it would it would uh, you know it would give you a nice secure random password. But but holy cow, did I get the flack right? What a, what a horrible idea! Someone actually had the same idea as you. You know that the 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 application should go try to log into a bunch of different websites using that password, which sounds like a nightmare to me. By the way, oh yeah, I was joking. <laughs> and, 
Uh, Technically, it should be a, a non-reversible password anyway, but that's a different story. Uh, well, but at the time they're entering it, you, you have right, it in you could, the... you could capture it at that moment, sure. Um, but, you know, anyway, there's no good option here, right? Look, I mean, we fought Canada for six long, bloody years so I could set my own password. <laughs> you know, I never, I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. Never thought of it that way. So, um, anyway, then, uh, then they point out that, you know, you, this is a sticking... This is really something that bothers me a lot. Patch your damn application, your web applications. How freaking hard is it? And don't install any WordPress plugins ever. Well, or if you do, <laughs> patch them. By the way, speaking of WordPress, right? WordPress has like um, you know something like almost thirty percent of mark thirty uh, percent of the internet just about runs WordPress, right? WordPress now gives you the oppor- the ability to auto update everything. Right? There's no excuse anymore. There's no excuse. Just, you know, go in there and, and, and auto. If you're going to ignore the damn thing, you know, go in and, and set it to auto update. I think the big problem we have is kind of twofold. Number one is in the in a corporate setting, you get um, you get little pet projects, with, you know, with of people, and they. You know, they they'll set up their little WordPress site for for whatever they're doing, and then they, they then they get fired, or they they leave, or whatever, and that site's just there, and it never gets updated again. I I think it's going to get worse. Uh, you know, you're basically talking typical common shadow IT, and it's right definitely going to get worse. Absolutely, we're making it. We've commoditized spinning up servers on the internet. It used to be an arcane art that took a lot of. Uh, sacrificing of goats and ancient rites and mystical arts. Now anybody can pull out a credit card and have a server up in 10 minutes. Exactly. Uh, so that's good on one hand. I'm not trying to keep technology away from the masses. But we have lost the the institutional memory of the folks who've done it for years to keep things secure, if, if they even are so inclined. So now we've got you know anybody who is so inclined can spin up a site and maybe you've never even heard of security considerations. So then it becomes, do you then make it incumbent upon the cloud providers to force security? Well, that gets back to your communist manifesto, buddy. <laughs> well, you know, from, from the perspective of cloud providers though, they're just, they're just providing you a bucket to run your crap. Right. I mean, that's, that's all that's, that's their perspective, you know, that they're, right. and that's a, you know, that, that business is a race to zero. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it is, it is not a high margin uh, business and it's getting, you know, it's getting worse every, all the time. So that, that's not something that you're going to see happen. I don't think, right. I, I, I mean, I, I really think this is, um, there's, there's a, there's a conflict of paradigms that we haven't, I don't think fully recognized in, in the, in the current, revolution of agile and devops and you know self-enablement and all this stuff you know that in the past yes we had overbearing it processes and change management and all that bs right but you know we we, the pendulum has swung really far the other way and now you know you don't have that kind of um you know that, that institutional commitment to the things that you're setting up. And so now, 
right. know, you're, you're, you're just kind of throwing crap out and seeing what sticks to the wall and we're not taking it down if it doesn't, you know, <laughs> I guess, I, I don't know what the answer is, right? It just, it seems like, um, it, it seems like we need a, you know, we need to, in general, now obviously some companies do this better than others, right? But we need to make sure that there is a commitment. If we're going to put something out there, you know, that, that it has the level of commitment, even though it's going to, you know, it's going through a new type of IT process. So anyway, um, and then finally, da, 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 everything else. It's the everything else bucket. It's other. <laughs> and uh, other. other. And really the only, the only notable thing in here is again, the business email compromise. Right. This is a, uh, you know, from a, from a, a breach perspective, it's the business email compromise. I would also, by the way, throw into the, into that pot, you know, every year we have the, the W2 in the U S here, at least we have the W2 scams where, you know, people pretend that they're the CEO and they, for whatever reason, I don't, I don't, it's never fully, um, I, I've never gotten my head around why, the HR department believes that the CEO needs to have the W-2s of all their employees. You don't question the CEO. I don't. I don't understand. Do you want your job next week? It, it doesn't make sense to me. But, you know, it, it, it happens. It happens every year. Uh, so, so yeah, there, I think there's a, there's a whole category of, of um, you know, of, of attacks where you're, you know, you're, you're spoofing some some senior executive to get whether it's you know f- money transferred or or sensitive data sent so um and on obviously the we already talked about the solution to that which is make sure you have good you know you have good processes in place for the things that matter you know you don't rely on email for transferring funds you don't allow people to request w2s to come in you know, via email, um, you know, you tag email you coming know, from outside as we need to be agile and entrepreneurial and flexible and nimble. And you're just preaching a whole lot of bureaucracy and red tape, buddy. <laughs> you know, you're That's damn, old. You're right. Thinking. You're right. You're absolutely right. And but this is, you know, fundamentally, this is the balance of security. This is this is it in a nutshell. Yeah. Ease of use versus well, exactly security. right. We don't have to do it, right? I mean, that's that's the thing. None of this has to be done. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We we can we can skip any and all of it, and and then accept accept what may come, right? right. That's that's the uh, that's the trade off, right? And and I think that by the way, that's what makes this industry so complicated is that every Every business, every organization has a different understanding, you know, of what their risk is. They have a different level of risk tolerance. One of the things that bothers me is that organizations take risks with stuff that they don't own. Right. And are they even truly cognizant of the risk they're taking? Right. Exactly. So anyway, it's, um, you know, that is, uh, that, that's our report for, uh, for for the the DBIR, 
So one thing, as an aside, in previous years, there was a whole bunch of uh, sample breaches narratives that were really interesting. Uh, that's now in a separate report. So if you're looking for that, that's in a different report by Verizon. And maybe we'll cover that in another show, because I think some of those are really interesting to talk about. Yeah, they, they are. And it's a, that report is actually like 20% longer than this one. So. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll pick and choose then. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm sure nobody's saying it's still great. listening to us rambling at this point. That's true. I'm gonna put an intermission in, like a <laughs> just twenty minutes of chamber music. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, that is the show. That's our that's our DBIR spectacular. Mm-hmm. Thank you for hanging out with us. Yeah, hope you uh, learned something. I know I did. We talked too much. Uh, and and by the way, I. I do recommend you go through and read the report. I mean, it's we. I know we we talked about it. We did a, a well. Then they could skip listening to this whole damn show. Yeah, but you know, maybe this this is a, a, a you know good fly through for them to figure out where they want to where they would want to focus. All right. right? So, anyway, thank you very much for for uh, hanging out with us again. Thank you to our Patreon donors. Uh, oh, by the way. What was with DerbyCon selling out in three minutes? I got to tell you, that was that was nuts. Well, hey, much props to DerbyCon. Much success there. Uh, it, did, it did cause much wailing and gnashing of teeth, though. Yeah, by me. I, I, was, <laughs> I was one of the ones doing most of the wailing and gnashing of teeth. Uh, well, both of us missed it. I mean, I, I actually, it set an alarm on my phone because I completely didn't know that they traditionally put tickets on sale early uh i i, I guess that's a thing and and i just didn't know because <laughs> i'm lame so i uh i had set my phone it was supposed to go on, on sale at one o'clock and i set my phone for twelve fifty eight to remind me to stop what i'm doing and go over to the DerbyCon page and it was already sold out twelve fifty eight. yeah and i was like ah uh, <laughs> well i couldn't bother uh now i so you know, all props to Dave Kennedy and the team running that show. It's a it's a great show, and as we've seen over and over with other cons, you're always going to have people upset that they can't get tickets. That's a sign of of a successful show, and it's a tough situation. I don't know anybody's hit on the right solution to that problem yet. I did see just earlier today that they are no longer going to randomly put tickets on sale if they say it's going to go on sale at 2 p.m. on Tuesday it will be 2 p.m. on Tuesday or or after if they're having technical issues so they're going to kill that that randomness involved going forward well I, I you know in so so I also agree DerbyCon is a wonderful show I mean it's it's a and I'm I'm all of my anger and frustration is that I didn't get a ticket not I'm not you know it's 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 not anything more than that. Um, I think from the, in their credit, right? They uh, this is the seventh the seventh year, right? And um, I think two years ago, tickets sold out in like two days or something like that. Last yeah. year, it sold out in eight hours. And so, if you open the, you know, if if tickets sell out in eight hours, then you open ticket sales five minutes early. It doesn't really matter, right? Um, right, but, and that's exactly their point, and and they just didn't conceive of the fact it would go in three minutes. Right. Now, uh, who? I, we're all making assumption that's all legitimate purchases too. I don't know. Correct. But I think by now they would have figured out if there was some sort of massive 
ticket hoarding scheme going on. Yeah. Now, I, I will say that in, in previous years, uh, probably starting around the July time frame, we'll start seeing people realize they can't attend and trying to sell their, desperately trying to sell their ticket. So, um, you know, if you're on Twitter and you want to go and you didn't get a ticket, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I would start monitoring, you know, the DerbyCon hashtag and, and looking, mm-hmm. looking because they'll, you know, there is a lot of ticket sales that happen in the, in the, in the couple of weeks and months leading up to it. So, so I hope to be there. Um, uh, you know, I, I hope I get a ticket. I suspect I probably will, but we shall see. I, I'm at this point planning to go either way and just hang out. Yeah. Well, I got a hotel room, so. I, I don't know, by the way, did you, I don't know if you saw, but they're moving to the Marriott next year. I did. Yeah. I did see that. So that, that should be exciting. And um, plan ahead. There's a very high likelihood that you and I will be at the Aurora second annual O'Reilly Security Conference in New York. Correct. In late October. Correct. And I still have my llama mask, so that should be fun. Uh, what else is going on? I think I think we have uh, absolutely taken far too much time of our loyal listeners, so I think we should go. Say goodnight, Gracie. <laughs> <laughs> goodnight, Gracie. Have a good one. We'll talk again next week. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye.